Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and we're here with a Slate spoiler special on The Bourne Ultimatum, the latest chapter of the Bourne Spy Trilogy. And uh, as you know, if you've ever heard a spoiler special before, as you should gather from the name of the feature, this podcast will give away many plot points. And if you don't want to know how the movie turns out, you should wait till you've seen it to listen it. So I'm here with John Swansburg, a Slate editor, with whom I saw The Bourne Ultimatum last week. John, thanks for coming. My pleasure. And uh, I'm going to make you the defender of this movie, although I think we were both very fond of it. I want you to tell me what sets this trilogy apart for you, and why do you think that the Bourne movies are sort of the crown jewels of the action franchise movies out there right now? Um, Not that I disagree with you altogether, but I want to hear your defense. I do think that. I think that these are the best action movies out there. It's the best franchise out there. These movies pump me up, um, but they also sort of make me think a little bit. I mean, not too much. Um, (laughs) I think they kind of just get the right amount of kind of jargon, and they touch on interesting issues of surveillance and uh, sort of spy versus spy sort of stuff without getting too uh, into the nitty-gritty and kind of losing you. I also think is really well cast, and that's something that sets them apart for me. Damon is great as Jason Bourne, and the, actually the one exception to the to casting, uh, which I've mentioned to you in the past, is I think Julia Stiles is awful. She distracts me a tremendous amount, but Joan Allen, who's been in the last two movies, is fantastic as the sort of CIA person you can actually trust and who has a sort of soft spot for Bourne, which gets developed in this movie in an interesting way. David Strathairn, who's introduced in this movie, was top-notch as kind of a uh, bad guy CIA operative, but who sort of plays it a little bit by the book and a little bit uh, back channel and is is very scary, but also a little bit incompetent. So all those pe- all those actors are, are, are really wonderful. That's a, I think that's a big part of it for me. And also, uh, just the pacing is great. I mean, you never you and I uh, walked out and having never once glanced at our watches in, in, in this movie. I mean, it was just there's one sort of set piece after another that kind of works over and over again. And you know, all those things together kind of I think make it work for me. What about the uh, the Born formula you were mentioning before? I mean, before we get into specifically what happens in the Born Ultimatum, you were saying that there's these sort of tropes that have to recur in every Bourne movie, and yet you're sort of looking forward to them. It's not as if you're rolling your eyes that it has to happen yet again. You're sort of thinking, when will X happen? What are some of those things? Sure. Well, I mean, in some some ways, it's because uh, the movies are so relentless, I think you don't notice them. I mean, this movie really sort of throws you into the middle of uh, the action, uh, as as I think pretty much they all do. But it wasn't actually until I saw this movie and then went back and watched the other movies that I kind of picked up on the formula, which is a a great testament to how good the formula is, because it hadn't occurred to me when I watched them each individually. But having watched all three kind of in a row, more or less, I actually watched two after three, which is kind of confusing uh, as I try to think of the plots in my mind now. I realized that they basically are uh, very formulaic. There are certain set pieces. There's always a a moment where Jason Bourne is fighting against one of the other assets, as they call them, one of the other kind of deep black ops guys that were trained like he was. And there's always a great car chase, sometimes several great uh, car chases. In the first one, he's in a Mini Cooper uh, in a, for a wonderful car chase. And I believe in the second one, he's on a scooter for a great car chase. Or that was actually in, in the most recent movie. There's a great scooter chase. Later, he's in a uh, he's in a police car, which is kind of funny. And then also, there, there's also these great uh, moments of repartee between him and the CIA folks who are trying to to uh, capture him. And there's always, in particular, there's always a moment where he seems to get inside the heads of the people who are trying to track him down and a sort of a uh, fox in the hen house kind of moment where he kind of infiltrates their operation in a be- as they're trying to catch him he sort of catches them and in this movie in particular there's a great one where he ends up in the office of the CIA guys who are trying to catch him which is oh, kind yeah, of a real, I want to talk about that later after moment. we after we've gotten to that point in the movie I want to talk about that as one of the big logic holes in the movie but just it is, yeah. just really briefly so we we meet Bourne at the beginning of this movie right he he spent the entire second movie chasing down the killers of his girlfriend Franca Potente right, right. from 
from part one, who you and I both agree was fantastic, and we miss her desperately. Totally miss Even her. Even if we just see her in a flashback, we're happy. She's yeah. so much better than the plotting Julia Stiles. I'm sorry if you're listening, Julia Stiles, but <laughs> Franco Potente just, just ruled in that in that first movie. Anyway, so he spent the whole second movie trying to avenge her. That's now accomplished. And what's left for him to do in this movie? I mean, he's got one major task, which is that he's got to figure out who he is. He right. still doesn't know why he woke up floating in the Atlantic that day five years ago uh, with many fake passports and right. many hundreds of thousands of dollars, but no idea who he actually is. And a Glock. Is. And a Glock. Yeah. <laughs> so he starts to home in on his own identity. And what happens along the way? I guess his troubles all begin when it, this British journalist, played by Patty Considine, starts publishing too much information about him, right? In right, yeah. He's working papers. for The Guardian, I believe, and is doing this series on, on Jason Bourne. It's like a four-part series on Jason Bourne. And the authorities, the CIA folks, are kind of uh, keeping tabs on him. And he, actually, at the very beginning of the movie, he gets a source kind of deep in the CIA to talk about Treadstone or, and then something called Blackbriar, which I guess is maybe the umbrella group that Treadstone was underneath. And Treadstone is sort of the ultra-secret program that kind of created these super spies that Jason Bourne is the sort of example par excellence of. So, uh, and Treadstone, let me see if I understand this right. The, the program didn't mean to erase his memory, right? That was sort of a byproduct of all the horrible things that they did to him to make him into a killing machine. I think that's right, yeah. I think they tried to break all of these guys to the point where they would kill on command without thinking they would basically be uh, without conscience. And then I think what we're supposed to understand is that Bourne's amnesia is sort of, at first you kind of think it's maybe it's a function of having been shot in the back a couple of times and left for dead in the ocean. But it may also be that he is... He uh, born and, and you sort of get this understanding more in this movie. He has a real soul, and he feels really awful about what he's done. And he's, in some ways, maybe blacked this out. You know, he might have, might have had some agency in blacking this stuff right. out. Right. He has too much of a conscience to exactly. be that kind of killer. To be to be a treadstone black ops guy. Yeah. Right. So he his identity is on the verge of being revealed, or essentially has been revealed, although not conclusively proven by these newspaper articles. Right. Then he starts protecting the journalist. Right. There's a right? great, there's a long, great set piece that also sort of recalls some of the previous movies where he is trying to evade detection, but also talk to this journalist, and they're in Waterloo Station, and it's kind of a neat scene because the CIA folks who are back in New York are sort of utilizing all of the cameras that are in Waterloo Station to try to, try to find Bourne, and Bourne is just a master of uh, staying out of sight, whether it's out of sight of the sort of goons who are after him or the cameras and there's this kind of amazing kind of uh, amazingly choreographed scene where Bourne is trying to talk to this reporter who's kind of uh, a doofus in a way and of sort of have them both evade detection and he's using sort of very basic things like standing in places where the cameras can't see him and buying prepaid phones and making phone calls uh, on those phones that are untraceable and it's just all it's very elaborate and very neat although unfortunately for the journalist uh, he ultimately does uh, he doesn't listen to Bourne which is always a mistake and uh, he gets taken out by the CIA which is kind of a amazing thing. It gives you a sense of uh, who David Strathairn's character is, because Strathairn says we're going to take this guy out because he knows too much and they sort of take out this a journalist from The Guardian uh, in broad daylight, which is It also, surprising. of course, as journalists, makes us feel like our job is really important and glamorous, even exactly. if we are idiots who don't even listen to the super spy trying to give us some good advice. Right. If I ever run into a super spy, I'm totally going to take his advice, because uh, otherwise uh, the lesson of this movie is that I'll get shot in the head. Yeah, it's the fear. It's the moment the journalist betrays his fear and starts to say, oh my god, that janitor has a gun or whatever. Right. That's the it's moment. It's true. It's true. But yeah, the Waterloo Station is quite the scene is quite incredible because the um, geography of the station has been set up so perfectly that you have a very clear sense of what's a dangerous place to go, what's not a dangerous place to go. It's also almost magical the way Jason Bourne 
seems to you know disappear in and out of the crowd because as we commented on the way out of the movie in none of these three movies does he ever wear a disguise in spite of the fact he's this master of multiple identities with thousands of different passports and all of his girlfriends have to cut and dye their hair immediately before they can run away with him across the world but he's just always Matt Damon with a crew cut right he just has this amazing ability to go anywhere and know immediately what the dangers are and and avoid them and uh, you kind of forgive him because there is this notion he's a super spy and he's gotten this great training and and it's just so much fun to watch him know how to command that kind of situation that you're willing to suspend your disbelief. Or at least I am. I mean, that's definitely one of the points that that's one of the reasons I think this is such a great franchise because I'm always rooting for Damon. There's no, there's never been a point in, in the trilogy where I say, you know what, that's just absurd. He wouldn't do that. He couldn't be able to do that. Although the scene where he, where he ends up inside CIA headquarters, or at least the headquarters of this particular branch, it stretches the credulity a little bit, but it's so fun. And you're, you yeah, let's of- talk about that. Let's get to that spoiler with it stretches the credulity. I mean, I, to me, it's not that he wouldn't do that. In fact, you you think that his character might, in fact, have to do to do exactly that, but right. it's so stupid to have done that. And what is that 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 we're talking right. about? Right. So that that is, um, as I as I recall it, and correct me if I get this wrong, he needs he or needs or wants the documentation behind the Treadstone project so that he can find out who he is, but also I think expose the people who made him who he is. I mean, that's really his goal here. He's trying to go after the people who who turned him into Jason Bourne. So. He finds out the address of the sort of secret New York headquarters of the CIA that, are, that is responsible for this program or, or where the documents would be. And this is sort of a silly moment in the movie. I don't know if you remember this, but a car blows up. The, 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 document that he, the documents he needs are at one point are in a car that gets blown up. And he sort of revisits the, the site of the explosion and finds a shard, a piece of, pap- uh, a piece of paper that wasn't charred. And it has the address in New York of the office where the other documents would be, which is kind of ridiculous. But anyway, so he finds out where he needs to go in New York and shows up in New York. And he needs to somehow get into the office and get these files that will sort of prove who he is and sort of prove that uh, or sort of t- lead him to where he needs to where he needs to go. So in order to get in there, he needs to sort of convince all of the people in that building to leave so he can break in. And that that's sort of is that right, about right in terms of. Yeah, that's the basic idea. So yeah. he essentially creates a diversion, right. right, and sends everyone in the entire Langley building to the wrong place. Right. I mean, here's a moment where I sort of found, you know, I guess on the terms of the movie, I'll allow it to succeed, but especially the competent CIA that's being posited in this movie, not the actual incompetent CIA that we apparently have. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they would just vacate their building to right. go after some master criminal who, of course, God forbid he could ever lie to them. It's all he ever does. Yeah, I mean, it's important. It's, it's not Langley. I mean, it's, it's not like he breaks into, like, CIA headquarters. It's like uh, an office that's in, like, it's like a secret New okay, York you're office right, you're right. in Manhattan. But still, it's the Manhattan. top secret oh, sure. NSA office, it's, right? it, Yeah, it's, it's totally ridiculous. It's this top secret, as I understand it, CIA branch that, you know, is probably 50 people deep. It's super secret, but it's still like a whole floor of a skyscraper. And basically, uh, Bourne calls one of, the, one of their operatives and says, hey, meet me at Tudor Place in this, you know, uh, on this dead end that's, like, obviously the kind of place he would never pin himself down in. And what do they do? They decide to, like, get all run into their SUVs and, like, send the entire cavalry after him to Tudor Place. And then, of course, he, like, uses, you know, picks a lock and ends up in the office of David Strathairn's character. And then this is the kind of great moment where I wasn't exactly sure what to think of it. He places a call to David Strathairn's character and says, hey, I'm not in Tudor Place. Guess where I am? I'm in your office. 
um, and it, it plays wonderfully in the movie because you're just you're just it's such a great screw you to the bad guys. But at the same time, he sort of betrays where he is more quickly than he would need to, and it ultimately leads to him almost getting captured because obviously the CIA guys run back to try to capture him, and they they come pretty close uh, to getting him at that moment. Yeah, now that you recount the moment, and I remember it, it was a whole week ago we saw it, but we we did think that was a little unborn like, right? It was, I mean, yeah. Because Bourne is so he's a very modest superhero or action hero, I guess you'd call him. He doesn't really have superpowers. He, he just sort of... Right. Well, I guess he has sort of um, supposedly realistic superpowers. Yeah, and the, the movies like, will sometimes allow him the kind of moment like that at the end, but... At the end of the second movie, for instance, one of my favorite moments is he calls uh, Pam Landy, uh, Joan Allen's character, and has a conversation with her. And then at the very end, he reveals that he's having this phone conversation while he's looking right at her. And he he just the last line of the movie is, get some rest, Pam, you look tired. And she realizes, she sort of looks out the window and realizes, oh, my God, like he was looking at me while he was having this conversation. But she's sort of on his side, so it wasn't so ridiculous that he would maybe sort of reveal that, that he was that close. Whereas in this situation, the fact that he divulges his location is a little bit out of character because it's not a logistically sound decision. It's just sort of awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly because Strathairn is such a slimy guy and the way that they, they sort of do the dialogue, it, it works, but it's a little bit out of character. But again, you're getting towards the end of the, of the series here and you kind of, in a way, as, as a sort of Bourne fan, you want him to, to really you know stick it to the man. So I think my reaction was, he's sticking it to the man and that's great, even though it's maybe a little bit out of character. Yeah, I mean, he's not one of those heroes who gets a lot of enjoyment during the movie. He's yeah, always got the none. knitted brow and he's just always tense and he's always being chased around by some insane killing machine. Right. It's not like Bruce Willis or you know somebody who gets to sort of get off some wisecracks and enjoy himself in the process. Right, there are very few wisecracks. So who can begrudge him? Yeah, he's always having headaches, you know, his, his uh, women always get killed off, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a tough it's a tough road to hope. I read a comparison Bourne. of him to Hamlet somewhere, and I thought that was very apt. There, and I met, Matt Damon plays it with a little bit of that sort of adolescent angst, you know, mm-hmm. that that actors sometimes put into their Hamlets. And as action heroes, summer action heroes go, he's one of the more Hamlety ones I can think of. Yeah, absolutely. Except he's much better at actually deciding to act when he does. I mean, he sort of doesn't know quite what to do. Um, and obviously there are serious questions of identity, but when he decides to kick ass, he kicks ass. Yeah, I guess in a way the difference between him and Hamlet is that he, he can't not act, right? right? I mean, he's been trained in this CIA training program so that he must act even against his own consciousness. Sure, own it's sometimes. almost involuntary. I mean, that's one of the best scenes in the whole trilogy, I think, which I mentioned to you uh, when we were going to see the most recent movie. There's this great scene in the first one where he really doesn't know who he is. He's just washed up on shore, and he's sleeping on a park bench in uh, Marseille, I think, at night and gets accosted by a couple of police officers who are kind of getting in his business for being a vagrant, and he just kicks the absolute crap out of them. And it's like he doesn't really know that he has these powers. He has no idea where that came from. But it's just, you know, in 10 seconds, he's reduced these two guys to uh, hobbled masses, and, you know, he has their guns. And he's yeah, sort of I looks, have to yeah. say, I mean, I think that the first movie plays the best of the three in some ways, even though it might not be the most tightly paced and the most action-filled and the most spectacular, like the two Paul Greengrass, which are the second two. The first one directed by, what was his name? Was it Rick Lyman that directed yes. the first one? It, it's got a little slow of a pace, but it Doug works Lyman, that. Sorry, Doug, Doug Lyman. Lyman. Doug yeah. Lyman. It just works that amnesia angle so nicely. You know, right. I mean, it really asks again and again this existential question of like, how can I be a person who has all this history and all these skills and tactics, but I have no identity? And um, to me, that gets lost a little bit in the second two movies because he has at least he may not remember anything before the Treadstone operation, but at least he has the memory of the two prior movies and the girlfriend and so right. forth. All right, so we were just talking about David Strathairn's sliminess. Let me also just put in a plug. He's so fantastic as a villain, right? Like oh, terrific, we, yeah. we want to see David Strathairn now, not only in the next Born movie, which I hope there is another one, but I would just like to see him as summer action bad guy every summer for the next 10 years. I Absolutely. Mean, you always see him as 
as far as I can remember, I don't know, tell me if you can remember another heavy that Strathairn has played. I mean, to me, he's always sort of the, the earnest, honest, intellectual yeah. good guy, right? Yeah. But maybe I'm just stuck in the Edward R. Murrow I feel like the act role for him is in Sneakers when he plays the blind guy who, uh, as part of that team of, of spies. And he's just sort of like, yeah, he's just kind of bland and, and sweet. And he, it, it works fine, but he's so much better as a, as a bad guy. I mean, I've always loved him as a good guy, too. I just think he has a really great presence as an actor. But I was just surprised to see how wonderful he is as this suave, soulless government operative dude. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about not only his character, but about um, government as seen in this movie. Because both of us were really struck that of the trilogy, it's by far the most political, the most um, clear in the analogies that it's making between their government and our government. Mm -hmm. Although terrorism, per se, doesn't really come up in this movie. No, it's interesting. Terrorism doesn't. These still feel like Cold War movies more than... uh sort of war on terror movies in a way. But um, it's starting to skirt the edges of you know, Middle Eastern politics. Sure. More. Like there's this scene that takes place in Tangier, the right. great fight scene in Tangier. Right. And there's kind of a Moroccan element. It's almost as if they're tiptoeing around the Middle East without quite daring to Right, stoke yeah, it's ashes. like they decided to have a, a location there. And this is actually something else that I meant to mention before that I realized in watching the movies again. The locations uh, in these films is one of the things that makes them great. I mean, they shoot in Europe. They shoot in all these... You'll bounce to eight different European cities in one single born movie and... The fact that they shoot on location lends a certain authenticity and uh, interest to those scenes. But yeah, so, and the other thing is, I think the obvious point is just the way that surveillance pops up in this movie. It's used more by the CIA guys who are trying to track down Bourne and, you know, the way in that Waterloo scene that they're able to sort of, that that these guys, this sort of rogue unit of the CIA is able to marshal, you know, 100 cameras in Waterloo Station at the drop of a hat to go after Bourne is kind of shocking. And then there's also just, you have these flashback scenes where Bourne is, is remembering what was done to him when he was sort of brought into the fold as one of these dark ops guys. And they basically are like waterboarding him and um, putting a hood over, like a black hood over his head and and subjecting him to to some manner of torture. It's a little bit hard to to gather what it is. But even though that's torture being visited on Bourne himself, there's a sense that the guys who did this to Bourne to make him into a super killer are perfectly willing to do that stuff to the other guys, the, you know, the bad guys, or whoever they deem to be the bad guys. And Strathairn has a sort well, of... Well, or indeed to journalists, or, or to, to journal- a young yeah. woman who's one of their own operatives, Julia sure. Stiles. Right. I mean, they- Strathairn really pulls out the stops by the end, and is essentially justifying to the Joan Allen character flat out, right? right. I mean, it's yeah. not, at one point she says, where does all this end, right, if we start killing our own operatives? And he says, it ends when we win. I mean, I think you can't you can't hear that without hearing a pretty sharp government critique in it. Sure, and he, says, he makes a sort of, like, veiled allusion at that point, I think, to... He says something like, "You've seen the the dossier. You've seen the tapes. You know you know how how serious the danger is." And he's not talking about Islamofascism per se there, but you, there's a sort of sense that that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the KGB. So there are sort of these kind of uh, vague illusions. The movie stays at a sort of arm's length, but in the past it's felt more like it was like a mile away from the sort of uh, geopolitical moment, and and now it feels a little bit more. Uh, close. I don't know if you saw the movie Shooter last year, the Mark Wahlberg. I didn't. Actually, or I guess it was the beginning of the summer. I can't remember. It was, it was a while back it came out. And I was. I remember being really struck and doing a spoiler at the time here in this very room about how dark the vision of government was in that movie and just how utterly bleak and hopeless it was about the, you know, the, about any hope for, for leadership. And I wouldn't say this movie goes that far down that path, but it's a little bit moving toward that zone. It is. And I think that a, a reason that it works and that these movies are are interesting is that while 
I, ho- I hope that there's nothing like Treadstone in our in our real government, uh, in our real CIA, and there's something not entirely believable about the way uh, the movies portray uh, our government. There's also something that is kind of believable about the CIA. I mean, the, the way they throw around the jargon and the way that the sort of it, the movies portray the bureaucracy, it does have this sort of ver- verisimilitude to it. I mean, it's, I, I don't think that's how the CIA really works, but it's not so hopelessly caricatured like it's, uh, that you think, oh, well, that's not the way our government does business. You kind of think, well, maybe it could be. Well, I guess what what strikes me is, especially now under this administration with the Patriot Act, you would like to think that things couldn't go that far, but you never know. And I know walking out of this movie that I was ready to roll my eyes at the idea of a CIA substation underneath the city of London. And you told me that such a thing, as far as you know, actually exists. There's some excavated hole under the city of London uh, well, not, not necessarily under the, <laughs> under the city of London but there are I mean my understanding is that there are listening stations in England not necessarily in London um, that there's a lot of communication intercepts that go on there are programs that are sort of been hard to sort of ferret out exactly what uh, the relationships between the Anglophone countries are but there is a lot of sharing of information and, and some of the ways in which they sort of portrayed the ability of the of the United States to get information out of England seems like it could be plausible and in a way that's kind of scary well, all right, we should wrap things up. But while we're spoiling, let's do the big spoil. What do you think uh, the end is about? I mean, first of all, we can give it away here. It, does does Bourne make it back to his home to find his identity? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, you know, there's a there's kind of a weird moment where he you know he jumps off of a building into the East River. If I'm not mistaken, looks like the East River. Looks like, looks like, like he's River. jumping just past the, the 59th Street Bridge. Yeah, and uh, and um, Strathairn's character sh- uh, fires his gun at him. It's not clear whether he actually hits him. And you're not sure. You're left kind of wondering for a minute, uh, did he make it? Because there's a shot of him sort of like floating in the water, looking kind of dead. But then at the very end, he starts swimming, and you you get the sense that he's very much alive. So, I mean, the franchise could end here. I mean, if this were the last movie, if no one ever made another uh, Bourne movie, it wouldn't be like, oh, my God, but what about this cliffhanger? Uh, It would be like, oh, he got to sort of swim off into the sunset in a way. Well, he also finds out his identity, which to me was a little bit of a plotting moment. It's kind of disappointing when your great amnesiac hero finds out, oh, your name is David Webb, which is such a boring name. No, that, I mean, they really on. could have done better with that name because <laughs> uh, Jason Bourne is such a great name. And even some of the other aliases I've, I think I've seen him have are better than that. He, he also confronts uh, – we don't have time to get into this, but he also confronts the, the guy who basically turned him into Jason Bourne, who's played by Albert Finney as kind of like a, a military psychologist guy. So he kind of has the story now. I mean he sort of exercised the ghost that he set out to, go, the, to exercise to the extent that he can – does that mean that they couldn't dream up another adventure for him? Uh, I, and I think that someone is probably already dreaming that up. And Julia Stiles has to be involved in some way. I mean, she hasn't been given really anything to do in any of these movies so far. Even this one in which she's the nominal romantic interest. They don't get to kiss. They don't really have a real conversation. I mean... Yeah, she totally doesn't get a piece of Damon at all in this movie. And she, she sort of makes it seem like uh, she totally had a crush on him when they were waterboarding Yeah, there's a him. mysterious <laughs> scene where she sort of essentially tells him, oh, when I was part of that group of people who were torturing you and erasing your identity, I kind of thought you were cute. Yeah, she's like, it was really <laughs> hard with you and he's like yeah okay but um uh, we need to get out of here uh, but the final glimpse we get of her she as you were saying she seems to have transformed into some kind of grad student in montreal or something right. she's sitting around with like hennid hair and a glass of beer at a cafe yeah. watching watching tv and learning that born is is probably still alive and smiling and gives this ear. sort of sneaky smile and so you know you maybe get the impression maybe they're going to be after her i mean you know she she would be the most obvious target now right, right? since she's the person who knows the most about the operations who's sort of out there on the loose and it's pretty so hapless. maybe he's going to go and and rescue her somehow for the next episode. I mean, personally, I just think if this movie does anywhere near as well as it's bound to do this weekend and for the rest of the summer, I can't imagine they wouldn't try to sneak in one more if Damon's willing to do it. Obviously, it depends on Damon because there's no born without him. I agree. I mean, I sort of, Matt Damon, if you're listening, 
I think you shouldn't do it. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that uh, the trilogy stands really well right now as it as it is. And uh, oh, I'm totally the abject fan groveling. Come on, Matt, do it. <laughs> I don't. As as I mean, I'm a huge fan of this of this franchise. I just I don't know. I mean, I. I'd be a little bit worried about what you they just would... have more dignity than I do. I guess all. so. I guess so. I hope that uh, I hope that he doesn't do it, but I would be waiting in line on opening day to go see the fourth one, obviously. So, all right. Well, John, thanks a lot for seeing the movie with me and coming in to uh, to spoil it. Anytime. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.